Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, October 16th, 2022 called, I have called you by name, Peter, given by Pastor Chris Simmons. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. As we begin again, this is a sermon series that we've been in for a little bit, but you you came at the right day, because here we are, beginning the New Testament with the character of Peter. And Peter is a very very prominent character in all of Scripture. I would say he's mentioned... uh, you know, Jesus obviously mentioned the most in these Gospels, but he's so prominent. He's probably mentioned in those top three people throughout Scripture. And I think God did that for a very important reason, because we have a lot in which we can relate to Peter in regards to those struggles, but also we could see that restoration that God delivers to Peter. And I, you know, we're, I, I said this last time, I hate to start off like not scripturally, but I'll tell you this, we're told not to compare ourselves to one another. I can't help but when I read Peter to look at that and be like, man, if God could restore and forgive that guy, maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm not so far off. Maybe I'm not so far off the graph that I'm outside of God's forgiveness. If he can forgive Peter and the things Peter does and says, maybe that forgiveness can kind of come my way too. So I find a way in which we relate to it. But he is such a diverse character too. I say character. He's not fictional. Or, yeah, he's not fictional. He's very real or was very real, still is very real. But we see a lot of these traits within him. That, that we either possess individually or we possess entirely. So as we look through Peter, as he mentioned, we kind of have four vignettes we're going to go through. Some instances within Peter's life and how he struggled with God and how that restoration came about. We could do a whole weekly sermon series on Peter. So I only picked four. If I didn't pick your favorite Peter moment, I'm sorry. We, we could share that over a cup of coffee sometime. So as we start over here, we're going to where Peter walks on water. And this is in Matthew chapter 14. And the struggle here is the struggle with doubt. And we all struggle with doubt here and there, right? That's what doubt is. It's a struggle between whether we feel like it's true or not. So doubt in itself is a struggle, but then we struggle with the fact that we're having a struggle, and then you struggle with the fact that you're struggling having a struggle. It kind of just keeps going, right? So that's what the struggle with doubt looks like. And here in the instance walking on water, we see uh, Jesus had just fed the 5,000, and he tells the disciples, all right, go ahead and catch a boat, get across to the other side of the lake, I'll catch up with you later, I'm going to go pray to my father on this mountain. So they say, okay, listen to Jesus, hop on the boat. And as they already begin their journey, a fair ways in, they feel a storm coming, right? Waves are being hit against the boat. They feel the wind shifting the boat back and forth. And then eventually as dawn arises, Jesus then walks on the water. He's heading his way across the lake. And other gospels we hear, and he walked across the lake as if to pass them by. And the disciples see this and they go, oh, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, no. You bunch of dummies. He doesn't say dummies, but he says, no, come on, guys. It's me, Jesus. And Peter says, Lord, if it is you, call me out to you. Call me out on the water to you. So Jesus says, fine, Peter, come. And that's where we read this instance over here. Immediately, oh, no, I skipped that part. There we go. Then Jesus got down out of the boat walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. 
So right when he gets a sense of the storm, it blows across. You know, we always see Peter with like the Greek statues with the really huge beard, right? His beard waves in the wind. He feels the storm coming and he goes, oh no. And as he looks away from Jesus to the storm, he begins to sink. And this reminds me of something I'd say very practical. It's not very practical. In my life, um, one of my many careers I've had for many years, seven years, I was in the circus. And as I was in the circus, I learned many useful skills that are not actually useful at all. Um, one of them being how to walk a tightrope. Did it all the time, taught people all the time. We're going to talk about it right now. This is where I should say, kids, don't try this at home. Uh, kids, I'm teaching you this so you could try it at home. Um, find a tightrope, anything like that. I used to walk on like, fe- like low fences, like from fence post to fence post along the top. I'm teaching you so you could try it. I was going to try it on these. They're not, they shake a little bit. I was a little scared. So let me tell you about walking on a tightrope. Here are the keys. So tightrope, it's about, you know, yay thick. And as you stand on a tightrope, the big thing is, I tell people, you have to let your bones settle into each other. So you stand there and just let all your bones settle into one another. The goal isn't to be fighting for balance or engaging all your muscles. Sure, a tight core, but let all your bones settle. And as you do that, you have a really solid foundation. Then pick the spot across from you where you need to go. Right? Don't look down. Pick a spot directly across from you, eye level, where you need to go. And as you walk, you actually walk kind of like from the outside of your heel through like your pointer toe and your big toe over there. And I tell them like, don't just try and take a step and never be on two feet. I tell them, just commit. You go there and then you just commit to that next step. And then you let all your bones settle into each other. You go then, then you commit and you settle all your bones into each other. And sure, you can catch your balance here and there, but never take your eyes off of where you're going. Never look down at your feet. You know why? When you look down, that's where you're going to head. Wherever you're looking is where you're going to go. If you look down, you're going to end up down there too. In part, I say the kind of the same thing when I teach dance. I teach ballroom dance often. I'm like, if you have to look down at your feet and you're afraid your feet are somehow going to leave your body, you've got bigger problems. <laughs> Don't be concerned about where your feet are. Trust where your feet are going and how they're landing, but always keep your eyes on where you need to go. Trust your feet and be sure of where you're heading, whether it comes to dance, whether it comes to walking on a tightrope. And here, Peter starts by walking a really good tightrope, right? He gets onto the water and he's looking to where he needs to go. But what happens right when he looks away? He begins to go down. If you look down, wherever you look is where you're going to head. And he begins to sink. And you hear that, and you can, obviously, it relates very well to life. When the storm hits us and we have our eyes on Jesus, things are good. We're walking on water. It's, it's a miracle. It's literally a miracle of what Jesus has done for us. We're celebrating that, walking towards him, but then the storm begins to blow. In our life, that looks very different in a lot of ways, whether it's a struggle, whether it's finances, whether it's marriage, whether it's life, whether it's just the situations that we end up in in a broken world. The storms begin to blow. And when we stop looking at Jesus and we start looking towards the storm is when we begin to sink. And that water looks a lot different than, than the lakes that were in Israel at the time. This water is a, it's, it's a lake of despair. It's a lake of depression, of sadness, of selfishness. It's hard to look up at someone else where I need to go when I can't stop looking at myself. Right? We sink deeper and deeper into this water. And the prayer, it's a three-word prayer. Lord, save me. And as I look out to you, I can see, there, there's kind of two different ways you can take this. One is this. I look to you and you say, some of you are sinking today. You can feel yourself sinking into that sadness, that despair, not sure where to go, what to do. Our eyes have been taken off of Christ and at the storm of life that's hit us and we begin to sink into the water. 
But then there's, there are more people in the story. It's the rest of the disciples in the boat watching Peter sink. And what they're saying is, Peter, look up. Stop looking at the storm and look at Jesus. And you have friends today that you're thinking about right now and you could see that they're sinking. They're focused on the storm. And that storm came in a lot of ways, right, over the past couple of years. One thing we're discussing in like our staff meetings is just, what, what did this church look like five years ago? Where you sit today, who was around you five years ago? Could you write down who it was if you were sitting in that spot? Are they still there? Or maybe are they sinking? Has the storms of life, whether it was COVID and all the struggles that went with that, emotional, mental, physical, spiritual, has that taken their eyes off of Christ and they're in a struggle right now? Has, has other habits taken them away from that presence of keeping their eyes on Jesus? Are you watching them drown and you're shouting up to them, just say, Lord, save me. Because notice what happens when, when Peter calls that prayer and he says that. Jesus, and I, I imagine it like this. He didn't grab Peter's hand and pull him out. Peter's, oh, Peter's going like this. He's drowning, right? There's no grabbing hands. Jesus, I see it. He grabs the collar of Peter's tunic, and he pulls him up. And he says, Peter, why did you doubt? Peter, you of little faith, why did you ever doubt? And that sounds very like, like much like a chastisement, right? And it is a little bit. But I think there's a lot more sympathy and empathy that goes with that. Peter, you of little faith, even that little bit, why did you ever doubt me? Why did you ever doubt the power of your God? Why did you ever doubt Jesus? Why did you ever doubt me by looking away at that storm and looking down at your feet, wondering what you had to do when I had you the whole time? In that moment you cried, Lord, save me, I was right there to grab you and pull you out of that water. And again, that water's cold. That water could be sadness. That water can be despair. That water is a struggle, and it's a struggle of doubt. And he reaches in, pulls us up by the collar. You of little faith, why did you ever doubt? Of course I would be here for you. Just like that great song that, that Jared had, that new one. Of course I've been along by your side that entire time. Look up at Jesus. Lord, save me. And that brings us to that next struggle that Peter has, right? He's got a bunch of them. The next one is Peter and the foot washing. We'll also reference our scripture reading here, our gospel lesson, Matthew 16. And it's the struggle of acceptance. The struggle, struggle of accepting who Jesus is. Pastor Ding did a great job of bringing in the context of all that. I'll give you just a really quick review, Peter asked, uh, Jesus asked that question to everybody. Who do the people say that I am? And they give him reasons. Some say a prophet. Some say a dead prophet who's come back to life. But then he asked them directly, who do you say that I am? And Peter's the one, kind of either self-proclaimed or, or elected leader of the disciples, a confession from his very own heart. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, ah, boy, That's my guy. Good job, Peter. Gold star. And upon this statement, upon this rock, I will build my church. And he continues over there. And you got to imagine, Peter's pretty elated, right? He's, got, he's probably got the proud peacock walk going on. He's like, I got it. I nailed it. But that was a confession from his heart and a true one. But then there's more, right? It's always a game show. But wait, there's more. Because Jesus then continues as he teaches them, and he says this, verse 21. 
From that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Peter then took him aside and began to rebuke him. That word rebuke is a lot stronger than you think. It's a corrective word. And often, in biblically when we say that, it's a corrective word saying, hey, you're living a life, oh, I don't pointing at anybody, you're living at a life of sin, and I need to correct you. I need to change what you're doing because what you're doing is sinful. Peter's saying, Jesus, that's sinful. Come on, Peter. He's about to get righted on that. Right? He rebukes him saying, no, God. Uh, Let me say this correctly. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have any, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What Peter says in this moment essentially, no, God, you're wrong. I'm right. And Peter went from riding high, like gold star, and now all of a sudden, you're Satan. (laughs) Right? It was a pretty quick change for Peter. But you can see why, and, and it's not just, again, a chastisement. Jesus, I mean, man, you get into just one word of Scripture, and then you listen, and you read one word, and then you see how far one word goes. It has so much depth to it. There's always more depth to what Jesus is saying than just the surface statement. He's saying, get behind me, Satan. Why Satan? Well, because Jesus is talking about the old days. When I mean the old days, I mean the really old days. I mean like the Genesis chapter 3 old days, right? The beginning of humanity, where a very, comp- a very similar occurrence happened. And it's a story, and the story goes like this, just a few verses. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Did God really say you will surely not die, is what the serpent says. And as we know, the serpent to be Satan, he takes God's words and seemingly contradicts them and twists them, even uses a similar language. And that's the work of the devil, taking God's word and contradicting it and twisting it. So you go back to the situation that Peter's in, where Peter says, uh, when Jesus says, sorry, that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. And Peter says, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter is taking God's words and saying, no, you're wrong. He's taking God's words and he's contradicting it. Unknowingly, he's doing the work of the devil. And that's why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Don't stand in front of me. Get behind me. And then you go to the instance where um, Peter gets his feet washed, where Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet. And he approaches Peter, and Pe- what does Peter say? No, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Again, if God's looking to serve you, you probably shouldn't be saying no. You shall never wash my feet. And, Pe- and Jesus replies, if you don't let me wash my- your feet, 
then you have no part with me. Again, just another instance of taking what Jesus wants to do and what he's doing and twisting it, changing it, doing the work of the devil. And to, to kind of Peter's credit here, what he thought the Messiah to be was supposed to be someone of, of power, someone of, of being, being exalted, exalted in high power. He couldn't quite understand or comprehend or accept a suffering Messiah, a suffering, serving Messiah. He couldn't comprehend it. He couldn't understand it. And it's there that he couldn't accept it. Instead of being shaped by the truth of who Jesus is, he instead wanted to take the truth and shape it to his own desire. Hear that again. Instead of accepting the truth and being shaped by the truth of who Jesus is, he instead took the truth and shaped it to his own desire. And that's why Jesus replies, you are concerned with the things of men, not the things of God. And you hear that, and that's such a reflection of what we go through today, where I say, I should have my truth, and I should take my truth, and I can mold it to what I desire it to be, and you should accept it, because that's what the truth is. We find truth to be something we want to be able to shape and change rather than what the truth really is. And culture today will deem it as a, as a right and as um, a virtue even, that you can change the truth of who God is, of who Jesus is, of what the truth really means. And it's a harsh thing to hear. It's a harsh thing for me to hear, to be honest. I'm saying it. Imagine saying it in the mirror. It was a rough morning, right? It's a rough thing to hear that I'm, I guess I am. And it may be a reflection of what we have today, that we want the truth to bend to what we think it should be, malleable, that I want to make it more palatable, of what the truth of who God really is. But where does that lead us to? It leads us to a fall. It leads us to that moment in the garden. It leads us to being shaped by the lies of Satan rather than formed by the truth of God. Being shaped by lies rather than formed by the truth. That great image of the God being the potter and us being the clay. And in the same instance where that's a harsh truth, it's a gospel truth because what I get from that is the truth of God is unwavering. It does not change and it will not change. In the face of Peter, when Jesus is being rebuked by Peter, he doesn't change. He says, this is who I am, the suffering Messiah. That truth is unwavering. Honestly, in the face of something disgusting, which is the filthy feet of a bunch of, bunch of guys, if it was just my feet and they're relatively clean, it would still be gross. In that time, they're walking in dirt, mud, everything. In the face of something even disgusting, the truth does not change. When Jesus was in, in the Garden of Gethsemane and he bled his very own blood in sweat, saying, Lord, is there any other way? The truth did not change. The suffering Messiah stayed the same. The God that was there for you, that lived that perfect life for you, that took all of your sins upon himself and died for them on the cross, does not change. And the truth in which God takes us and resurrects us with him is unwavering. None of this changes. The truth is unwavering. And I'd rather be formed by a truth that is always true. All, God, all truth is God's truth is a great quote. I'd love to hear that. I'd rather be formed by that truth than trying to shape it to my own desire. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He says, hey, if you have a better idea, feel free to give God advice <laughs> and see where that leads you. It doesn't end up well. And then we get to the third point over here, and that's this. Peter and the restoration. And this is John chapter 21. 
And this is the pain of restoration. Can you show the next picture for me? So our high school volleyball team did great on Saturday. They did awesome. They won. I was here to cheer for them. It was woo. I'd like to think it was because we did a scrimmage as the staff, like staff and, and teachers. We were the classics team versus the new high school team. I'd like to think somehow playing us prepared them to, to win a, a tournament game. But I'd like to believe it. But here, I show you this picture for this reason. I got to play. It was awesome. It was fun. And I used to play in like high school and after high school. I loved it. Played. It was hardcore. I'd like to dive for a ball. I want to play every play. I learned something this past Thursday. You know, when you fall down, it hurts. <laughs> but I've learned something else. Something the, the like 20, year ago, 20 years ago me didn't know. For some reason, I'm at this point in my life now, getting up hurts too. I'm the guy when I, I sit down in a chair, I have to turn my mic off because I'm like, ugh. And it's like, oh, time to get up for prayer. Ugh, right? Every time. So I learned getting up hurts, maybe not the same, but differently than it does falling down. And I bring that up to you because today as we look at Peter's restoration, you got to look at his fall as well. So as, as they're, they're sitting there eating dinner and, and Peter says, I'm telling you, one of you will betray me. And Jesus says, uh, Peter says, never. Jesus, I will never betray you. And Jesus looks at him and says, I'm telling you, Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Well, that dinner was over. It was a nice dinner. But that same night, he's arrested. Jesus is arrested. And then he's taken before Pilate. And then he goes through the whipping of the cords and the suffering. And he's taking his cross all the way to Golgotha. And there he's being crucified. And Peter's watching the whole thing happen as he's in a crowd by a charcoal fire. And the people say, hey, hey, this guy, I I know this guy. He's a Galilean. He was with this Jesus fellow. And he says, no, no, I'm telling you, I don't know the guy. Then again, someone approaches him. Yeah, 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 I saw him. He was with him. Peter says, no, I'm telling you, I don't know the man. Then finally, the last one saying, I'm telling you, this guy was with the crowds. I saw him with Jesus, saw him all the time. And then Peter essentially says this, I swear to God, I don't know the man. And we get in Luke, right? In the Gospel of Luke, Peter and Jesus look at each other and the rooster crows. And Peter, realizing what has happened, he weeps. And he weeps for this reason. It hurts when you fall. It hurts when you fail. It hurts when you feel like you've let someone down. Then just a couple chapters later, John 21, right? Jesus has come back. He's been resurrected. He's eaten lunch with Peter, some fish on the side of the beach. Sounds like a nice day. And he essentially says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, yes, you know that I love you. And he says, feed my lambs. Restores him once. Back to his position. Feeding the lambs, being like a shepherd, and overseer. Back as an apostle. And he says it again. Peter, I ask you again, do you love me? And he says, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Again, feed my lambs. That's number two. Finally, yes, a third time. Peter, do you love me? And Peter, he is hurt. We read he's hurt at this point. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. And when he says that, he's saying, you know that I've also failed you. And I've fallen. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Restores him three times. For every failure he had, restores him for every instance. And you hear that because, man, if God could restore him three times, maybe he can restore me as well. Have you ever felt the pain of letting someone down? Oh yeah, I felt it. 
When I was a kid, um, I got a new bike. I think it was for Christmas. And I, I grew up in Chicago. And if you want to keep your new bike, you need a bike lock um, in order to make sure it stays yours, if you're lucky even. Um, so you, you get your bike and you're like, oh, but I didn't have a bike lock. And I asked my dad for weeks, Dad, I need a bike lock. Dad, I really need a bike lock. Dad, I need a bike lock. And it never showed up. So then I go over to my friend Joe's house. And uh, we go to his apartment. Him and his dad rode bikes everywhere. And while I was there, he gave my friend Kyle, who was with us, an extra bike lock he had. And I'm like, oh, man, Joe's dad, do, do you have any other bike locks, any extras? And he's like, no, I don't have any right now, but let me look around. So a couple days go by, and I'm back at Joe's house. Hey, hey, Joe's dad, do you have that extra bike lock? Were you able to find one? He's like, no, I wasn't able to find one, but let me look around again. And then finally, a couple days go by, I come back. Hey, did you happen to find that extra bike lock? And he's like... No, I haven't, but you know what? Let me make a call and see if I could find one. And in his wisdom, what he did is he called my dad. And called my dad. So I come home, and I'm like, okay, I come home. And I come upstairs to our living room, and my dad, burly guy, big burly guy, and, um, and he's in tears. I don't know what's going on. And he, he asked me to sit down by him. I sit by him on the couch, and he's like, I'm, Chris, I'm sorry that I failed you. And I'm, then I'm crying, you know, I'm, like, I'm probably like nine or eight, and I'm crying too. And I'm like, no, dad, I'm so sorry that I would have asked some, a different dad for a bike lock. Like, we're crying, we're like this, and we're holding each other, pat, pat. And um, he's like, okay, well, tomorrow, tomorrow, I will bring you home a bike lock. And I'm like, okay, great. So, you know, we, we go to bed, next day happens. My dad, and, you know, you see it now as an adult, you don't understand it as a kid. My dad was a really hardworking guy, worked in a factory, was the kind of guy who had to leave for work at 3.30, didn't get home till after 6. And to my realization, all those local, bi- local bike shops are closed. And so he's on his way home, and he goes to the one place he can find a bike lock. Calls me down, I come down the stairs, and my, guess what, he's in tears again. He doesn't cry a lot, by the way. He's not a crier. And he's in tears again. He's like, Chris, I got you a bike lock. And I'm like, awesome. And he's like, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm like, why? Hands me this bike lock. The packaging has a girl in a pink tutu (laughs) in a silver sequin shirt, a long blonde ponytail with a pink scrunchie. Well, why is she wearing such a specific outfit, you might be asking? Well, that's what the bike lock looked like. It was a cable lock that was covered in, in like silver glitter, like plastic. And then on the loops at the end where the metal was that kind of held the loops in place was pink rubber to cover those up so you wouldn't scratch your bike. And the lock was also bright pink. And you have to imagine this is bright pink, like hot pink. And both keys that went to the lock were pink. I wasn't a pink kind of guy. At that point, I'll rock a pink shirt now, but I maybe wasn't as secure as I, I was then as I am today. And I'm holding it. And I'm looking at it. But I also realized, I don't know, that it was a God-inspired moment to an ungodly child um, of, I have a choice here. I literally thought it. I had a choice here. I could be upset, which initially was the first thought in my mind. <laughs> like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm going to get beat up. And then I took a second and I looked at my dad. And if you had the eyes of someone who is just looking on you with expectation, that you'll either break them or restore them in just one moment. And here I am like eight, and my dad's like 42. And I had that moment. And we looked at each other. And I said, Dad, thank you. I really needed a bike lock. Didn't talk, to, didn't talk about the style of it. I just said, I really needed this bike lock. Thank you so much. 
And he, he, we held each other and he asked, I'm, he said, I'm sorry. And I said, it's okay. And just as a moment of being like a nine-year-old to a 42-year-old, I was a son restoring my dad. I was, you know, you think back on it and you go, that's kind of weird. But we had that pain of the failure. We had that pain of the loss. And then there's that pain of restoration. And with that pain of restoration also comes a sense of relief. Restoration is repairing something that was broken. We had something that was broken, and now it's something that was restored. And it hurt to put it back together. But there was also relief that went with it. And I tell you that story because Jesus felt the pain of redemption. The pain of of suffering, not just in the garden and prayer, all the way to the whipping, all the way to the scourging, to being put on the cross, to being insulted, spit upon. The death that happened for us, he felt the pain of redemption so we could feel the pain of restoration. That pain of restoration is being restored back to a place where you don't belong, to being restored back to a place that you didn't earn. And Jesus takes us and restores us back into relationship with God time and time again, whether it's through a pink bike lock or whether it's just through a conversation. He always gives you his forgiveness and restoration, just like he did with Peter as he fell into the water and grabbed him by the collar and brought him back up. I've been alongside of you the whole time. And you see that with Peter the three times? I say that to you again to know that no matter how many times you feel like you failed, no matter how many times you're seeking restoration as a father failing, or a mother, a husband, a, a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or you're on a team, a sports team, we feel that a lot. A lot of that pressure on a sports team when you feel like you failed in a critical moment for your team and your team restores you. Great pain, but also a great sense of relief that goes with that. And every time Peter falls short, you see Jesus restore him, and Jesus restores us as well. And it brings us to this final part, and this is just kind of in closing. Matthew 16, right? That foundation of faith, that we are all like Peter. It's not much of a choice. We are like Peter, and we also need to be like Peter. We are like Peter because we struggle with doubt. We struggle with acceptance. We feel the pain of needing to be restored and that pain of restoration, Yet in the same sense, we need to be like Peter because of his confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because that's where we get that great verse, John 3, 16. All who believe in me shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. So know as you look at Peter's life, anytime you read about him in Scripture and you see him fail, you see him fall, and that need for restoration, know that same redemption that went to Peter in the same way that he was restored, that same redemption and restoration comes to us. And to God, who gives that restoration, be the glory, now and forever. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.